Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be data. Well, data and history. Yes, data is something that we, we really wanted to spend a little bit of time on. Our, our show this week actually is going to be the first in a two-part series dealing with the opioid crisis and leading, hopefully, to, to hope and healing. Normally, we have an interview for the, the main body of our show, and that's going to be in our next week program. There's so much to discuss related to the opioid crisis, and we wanted to take the appropriate amount of time to dedicate to explaining how we got here. For me... It started in November of 2006. I needed hernia surgery. And when I had the surgery, they put me under general anesthetic. When I came to, I was in a recovery room and I felt different. In fact, I noticed next to my bed, there was a bag of something dripping into my veins. And I got this really funny grin on my face. I looked over at my wife who was there at my side and I said, honey, if all the world leaders were taking whatever I'm on now, there would be peace everywhere. At which point she rolled her eyes, as wives are wont to do, and looked at me and said, who are you and what have you done with my husband? <laughs> I was experiencing the euphoria of opioids. In that case, it was morphine. It wasn't just stopping my pain, but it was making me feel unusually calm. And that is something that actually goes on in our brains naturally at times. In fact, there is a cycle that everyone addicted to something goes through. It's a three-step cycle. And the first step is pleasure. So euphoria is the pleasure, the really calm, good feeling we get from opioids. You know, just like St. Thomas Aquinas says, even when people are doing bad things, they're usually trying to pursue a good. And a lot of times with the use of opioids, eventually for many people leading to the overuse, it always starts as a perceived good, usually pleasure. And we get the pleasure, and we get the same pleasure, uh, for instance, from a runner's high. You know, runners, if they run a certain pace, a certain distance, there are opioid-like chemicals that the body makes. And it gives us a small amount of pleasure. But that system in the brain for pleasure can be short-circuited by something that's much more powerful, like heroin. Yeah, the body's meant to enjoy a little bit of that from natural sources at times, but when it gets overloaded, then you can have deleterious effects. And in the brain, there's a chemical called dopamine. It's been called the happiness chemical. It's actually more complex than that, but dopamine is released when we have a new pleasurable experience and it presses the save button in the brain. It's, it's really kind of fascinating. It means this is something worth repeating. And so someone who's using it says, wow, this really feels good. And then it goes away. And then they want to feel good again. And each time it takes more and more of the drug to feel just as good. That's something that we describe in medicine as tolerance, where eventually doses of certain medication would need to go higher. People see that in recreational use of narcotics as well. And, and what happens is, you know, the cells in the brain have little buttons on them we call receptors. And the number of buttons that you can press to feel better actually decreases the more that you use the drug. So this is step one of the addiction cycle, pleasure. But when the great feeling wears off, after a while you develop symptoms of part two, withdrawal. Yes, and withdrawal for our listeners, it's a defined clinical entity. I think a lot of people probably use it in layman's term about caffeine withdrawal or withdrawal from their cell phones. And while there are clinical entities associated with that. When we're talking about opioids and specifically, there's a clinical syndrome that include things like diarrhea, vomiting, nausea, restlessness, and sweating, general discomfort or anxiety that are very real and uncomfortable for the patient. And usually, I believe, Tom, they set on about three to four days after discontinuation of the medicine. Well, you can actually go through this multiple times a day, as we'll discuss later. Okay. So eventually, yes, because of how short-lived many of these molecules' effects are in the brain. So when a patient is going through withdrawal, they sometimes think they're going to die, but it is not a life-threatening event. That's to be juxtaposed with things like 
alcohol withdrawal, which can kill people. Yes, this this one with opioids, the withdrawal syndrome does not kill people. So the with, whereas there are pleasure centers in the brain for the pleasure part, the withdrawal is often initiated in a part of the brain called the amygdala, which is kind of our emotion and fear center in the brain. It is really sending out strong signals to the rest of the brain that are hard to resist. And those strong signals result in the third step from pleasure to withdrawal to what is called craving. And craving is like, I've got to get it back. And at a certain point, it's not so that they'll feel good. It's so that they won't feel bad. Isn't that scary? It's it's so scary. And, and the part of the brain where we make decisions, like if you do a face palm, the part of the brain behind that forehead is called the prefrontal cortex. That's where we do reasoning. Craving and using the drug actually in adolescence prevents that part of the brain from maturing and in adults prevents it from doing what it's supposed to do. So actually you get to a point where this save system for pleasurable things in the brain gets broken and it gets overtaken by the pleasure of addiction but eventually the pleasure goes away and they only feel bad when they don't have it and they feel so-so when they do. See and I think that it's very important for us to focus on the biochemical foundation of this disease process because there is such a social stigma to opioid use disorder and people who have become addicted to pain medication. There is a point, and I'd say for, for the majority of these people, that they've probably fallen into it. And it's not necessarily an ongoing moral failing, however they started into it. At this point, we have a serious disease process that really cannot be overcome without outside help. Exactly. And so we get to the point that we might call addiction. With opioids, the term they use now is opioid use disorder, O-U-D. But addiction is really seeking pleasure just for the sake of pleasure instead of seeking something else in your life. And it's overtaking the normal brain processes that are normally supposed to serve what's called reward-related learning. It's like you do something well, you get an attaboy. Oh, I want to do that again. I like the feeling of that attaboy. Well, the attaboys or attagirls stop working with these drugs. And most people, at least until recently, who got hooked on opioids did so because they were taking them for a, a truly good medical purpose. Right. And that's one of the things that I think we as physicians have only recently identified in the last decade is that there are real risks to taking these medications. Even if there's good purposes, if you don't have strict boundaries about how and when to use them, really it gets hijacked, the system. So how did we even come upon opioids? How did we get to the, this epidemic, this crisis that has actually been declared both by the CDC and then more recently by the White House? Well, it goes back over 5,000 years to what was actually in the ancient Near East called by the Sumerians the joy plant, <laughs> or, or, or as we call it today, the poppy. And, and the poppy was known even back then to be a double-edged sword in terms of his effects. It was known to make people feel joyful and it was known to make them feel horrible. So the addiction was even known under a different name back then. And, and to clear up some terminology things, the term opiate, O-P-I-A-T-E, has been used to refer to natural chemicals in the poppy plant. And, and heroin is one of, of those uh, mixtures, one of those chemicals that's in there. Whereas opioid was used to refer to man-made chemicals, which were similar in structure and in activity. Now, more recently, the term opioid includes both groups. Okay. So it came into the United States with Chinese laborers in the 1850s who came during the gold rush, and they brought their habit of opium smoking with them to opium dens. Now, I'm a, a fan of you know old 19th century British literature, including detective stories. Who isn't, Tom? That's a good question, Andrew. <laughs> I like that. And oftentimes, like Sherlock Holmes, he ends up in... Uh, opium dens. Yeah. And so I actually have a picture of one I, I show in talks that was actually taken back in the 19th century. And it's just people's blood, the blank stares on people's faces are just incredible because they feel totally at peace. Why should I move? Why should I do anything else? Well, morphine itself is the principal ingredient in opium. Opium is just a mixture of 
chemicals from the plant. And morphine was isolated over 200 years ago in 1803. And it was named after the Greek god, I believe, Morpheus. Morpheus, that is right. God of sleep. Exactly. Not to be confused with Morpheus in... (laughs) Right. With Keanu Reeves, The Matrix. The Matrix, yes. All right. That's our requisite movie reference for the month. (laughs) Morphine was actually used in the United States for the first time in a big way in the Civil War. That's what was available for pain, period. Unfortunately, they experienced a huge number of soldiers who became addicted to morphine. Yes, I I believe that's the first time that they noticed the addiction on such a large proportion in America. Well, then chemists in the late 19th century decided we need a cure for morphine addiction. So what did they develop? Heroin. (laughs) Kind of sounds like robbing Peter to pay Paul. Oh, there's there's a lot of story of that in what we're telling today. So it was developed in Germany and sold, believe it or not, heroin over-the-counter cough medicine. You know, that's, I I wonder how long that lasted. (laughs) It lasted about 15 to 20 years before the U.S. passed a heroin act in Congress in the teens of the 1900s. Well, then the Germans again, because the Germans developed heroin, the Germans developed methadone as a cure for heroin addiction. And even today, methadone is used in methadone clinics. Yeah, methadone's a very interesting interesting drug, but it works similarly on the receptors, but with different half-lives and lengths of time. Uh, And actually, it's absorbed very differently by people, but it's another opioid. Well, you may have heard of medicines, Percodan, Percocet, Vicodin, Oxycodone, Hydrocodone. That's a mix of brand names and uh, generic names. But let's fast forward to 1980. 1980 is kind of a banner year in how this whole mess started. At that time, opiates, opioids were pretty much used in two scenarios. Acute pain, like either after trauma or surgery, and chronic horrible pain usually in cancer patients with metastatic disease. Kind of palliative care, the end of life. Correct. So either short-term, end of life. Other than that, it wasn't really used that much. Okay, that year, a one-paragraph article came out in the New England Journal of Medicine, really a letter to the editor. And what that letter said, written by Jane Porter and Dr. Herschel Jick, and they were from Harvard University, the Boston Collaborative Drug Group, and they learned that out of 40,000 hospitalized patients consecutive, About 12,000 received at least one narcotic prescription, and they said only four of those patients developed an addiction. So they concluded that addiction is rare in medical patients with no prior history of addiction. That's, That's really telling that this was a letter to the editor. This was not a robust study of any kind. This was speaking on strictly and, in retrospect, misinformed clinical experience. So from the next year, 1981 on, it was quoted over and over and over again as medical evidence that if you use opioids in chronic pain patients, that it's safe. But this study said nothing about chronic pain patients. It said hospitalized who were almost always the end-stage cancer, post-surgery, or post-trauma. Yet, This article was the beginning of justifying the use of opioids for chronic pain. And because that's so exciting, we're going to take a break to let you take a breath. But first, we have to have a a medical trivia question. And there's so much data here, so much to choose from. We have chosen this as our question for the week. If you look at the amount of opioids it takes to cause a fatal overdose... With morphine, you would, if you swallow the size of a pea, a garden pea, not the pea pod, just a pea, that's enough to kill you. Well, there's a new medicine out called fentanyl. Fentanyl is a man-made narcotic or opioid. What size compared to a pea of fentanyl would it take to kill you? And we could probably give a hint that it is stronger. It is certainly stronger. And then there's another drug called carfentanil and sufentanil which are opioids used as elephant tranquilizers. How much of that would it take to kill a man or woman? 
We'll be back after the break on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with Dr. Doctor, and we had just been discussing how one editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine, not a real study, got quoted so many times, and that's really catapulted the problem that we have today. Yes, only two years later in a textbook of pain management, that study is quoted as a reason to start continuing opioids in patients with non-malignant pain, non-cancer-related pain, like, like low back pain, for instance. Really, that was an assumption that was made, and it turned out to be a deadly assumption. As we will discuss. Uh, a medicine that was common in this area was known as MS-Contin. MS, morphine sulfate. Contin stood for continuous release. So this medicine was a breakthrough in a way in that it lasted 8 to 12 hours. Before that, opioids like hydrocodone and oxycodone would last 4 to 6 hours. Yeah, and that allowed for people to take it really on a chronic basis. One of the things we know in medicine is if you have to take a medicine more than once a day, the number of people willing or able to do it, it goes down for every dose of the day. So if you have to take something six times a day, nobody will do it. That's a tremendous point, Andrew. A few years later, or a year later, 1986, a Dr. Russell Portnoy in New York, a pain management specialist, did a study of 38 patients, we could say, only 38 patients. And he added to, you know, that Porter and Jick effect, the authors of that New England Journal paragraph. And uh, in the study, he concludes that opioid maintenance therapy can be uh, safe and more humane uh, than other options for chronic non-malignant, non-cancer-related pain if the patient had no history of drug abuse. But something he did that was rather pejorative, rather negative, rather in your face, was he coined a term called opiophobia. He was trying to shame physicians into using more opioids for patients. And as a result of other studies like this, other doctors talking like this, the opioid prescriptions increased drastically from 1990 to 1995. And then the patent for MS content was expiring. So when a patent expires... Yes, things things usually change a lot. Most of the medicines that I at least use in family medicine on a regular basis, they're 20 years old, and so they're affordable. Anything that's under patent, as many of our listeners know, extraordinarily expensive. If you don't have great insurance, you can't afford it. When a medicine like MS Cotton goes off patent, becomes very inexpensive, and then a lot more people would be interested in using it. And so the drug company, Purdue Pharmaceuticals, that made it said, we need another drug because generic forms of this MS cotton are going to become available. So what they decided to do was take, instead of morphine, they decided to take oxycodone, another opioid, and use their continuous release system with it. So they start experimenting in the summer of 1990 to put this out. And it's going to take years to put together. Uh, and in the meantime, while this is developing, Dr. Portnoy is back in the New York Times uh, in 93 saying there's, quote, a growing literature showing that opioids are safer than we thought, that opioids are a gift from nature. And it is a, quote, medical myth that opioids are highly addictive. You know, and that's one of the things that I always think about that my parents would frequently quote, people who don't study history will usually make the same mistakes. And if if Dr. Portnoy had just been looking at really what we already had evidence for, he probably had a little bit more caution. Now, even though he was trying to get many primary care physicians like Andrew, actually like Andrew's parents at the time who were primary care physicians, to prescribe more, most physicians at that time, and I was in medical training back then, we realized there was a huge abuse potential. So there was a, a big public relations event that had to occur, and unfortunately, this PR event did occur. At the end of May 1996, the FDA approved the medicine known as OxyContin. You may have heard of it. And the FDA approved it as the first and only 12-hour lasting oxycodone. In fact, they allowed the drug company, Purdue Pharmaceuticals, to market as safer than other alternatives. They were allowed to put that even in the insert in the package. And that, even from the MS cotton that was on the market previously, was stronger as well. So there was an increase there in severity. Even though they told the FDA that the morphine was stronger and that this drug wouldn't be as strong, it's actually 50 to 100% stronger than that. 
So, and this begs the question, by the FDA allowing them to say it's safer without evidence, the only thing they used was that it lasted 12 hours. But then we found out later on that Purdue Pharmaceuticals' own records said they knew half of patients did not have a 12-hour benefit. So what happened to those patients? Remember back to the beginning where we talked about this addiction cycle that goes through pleasure, withdrawal, and craving? Half of the patients on this drug, because it was only allowed to be prescribed, be prescribed twice a day, they were going through that twice every day. They were going through pleasure, withdrawal, craving twice a day. Yeah, that's that's terrible. And so it inadvertently, or maybe advertently, de depending on on who knew that data, set these people up really for failure because the bodies were being conditioned into this addiction cycle, whether it was the patient's intention or not. That is exactly right. And at this time, we started to see around the country what are known as pill mills. Yeah. Oh, so sad. These were unscrupulous physicians who, for 200 to $300 a prescription, would prescribe a month's worth of OxyContin or similar drugs to anyone who claimed they had pain. It's really tough because I can understand a little bit how physicians fell into this, although the, the ones who did it in a big way obviously were quite unscrupulous. But there's a lot of pressure on doctors to, to see patients quickly and to make them happy at least in the area where we're from, there's several physicians who have been sanctioned and even arrested for things. Those were by far the most successful physicians financially because these are very quick appointments. I need pain medicine. Here's your pain medicine. That's it. There's no medical decision making. If you have pain, we'll treat it. And so it, it did really lead to a conflict of interest for a lot of doctors. But we want to point out that a lot of this started with good intentions. Physicians want their patients' pain to decrease. Well, these pill mills uh, especially sprung up in Appalachia. You, you know, kind of the epicenter uh, was the junction of Ohio, West Virginia, and Kentucky. And so Purdue Pharmaceuticals had an army of up to 1,000 pharmaceutical reps. You know, the founder of Purdue Pharmaceuticals, Arthur Sackler, was the inventor of the modern pharmaceutical representative. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, he started out by owning an advertising company and working in advertising, but then his father was a physician, and then he and two of his brothers were physicians. So that's how it went. So these people went out, and one reason they targeted Appalachia is because there were a lot of people with manual labor who got injured and had chronic pain. Man, that's so sad. And that's what happened. And one of the things they sent out was this video to 15,000 primary care physicians. I'm curious if your parents got this video. I don't know. I, uh, I will have to ask them. It's called I Got My Life Back, in which these physicians and patients tell stories about how using OxyContin for their chronic pain gave them back their lives. And then these ads were also put into... American Family Physician, 1997, shows marketing promoting the benefits of 12-hour dosing. Well, and, and one thing that it's a bit of an aside, but maybe a topic for a future show, is the direct-to-patient marketing as well of medications. Oh, that's a great topic. When, when the pharmaceutical companies come and tell a patient, you need this medicine, or we'll see advertisements on TV, as a physician, we, we might say, oh, that's actually not, there's something a lot better for you. But if you're telling a patient that they need this and you're marketing to them, it really puts the patient in a position where they want this drug even before they, they try it. And, and here's a bonus trivia question. I just learned this from my 16-year-old daughter. I did not know this. There is only one other country in the world that allows direct-to-patient prescription medication advertising. Ooh, that's a good question. Do you know what it is? I don't. I should. Well, it, one of the reasons might be because my wife and that daughter have been watching this endless series of shows on the making of the movies, The Lord of the Rings, okay. which was made in New Zealand. New Zealand. New Zealand is the only other country in the world that allows that. Man, you think they learned from our mistakes. Right. So, <laughs> so no, no extra charge for that extra trivia question. You didn't even have to wait for the answer. I love it. Yes, yes, yeah. We're, we're being merciful today. <laughs> so physicians wanted to relieve patients' suffering. And then you have things like this marketing campaign. And then in 1997, so this is just a year after OxyContin comes out, 
one of the paid speakers for Purdue Pharmaceuticals, a Dr. J. David Haddix, wrote a statement for uh, the American Academy of Pain Medicine and the American Pain Society saying that opioids are safe to treat chronic pain. They're the experts, so primary care physicians more and more started to believe them. But talk about a conflict of interest being on the payroll of the company making this drug and selling this drug and then speaking on behalf of what would appear to be an independent medical organization. I mean, that's, that's terrible. That's unscrupulous. In 1999, Purdue Pharmaceutical did their own internal study, and they discovered that 13% of patients who took OxyContin for headaches got addicted, but they didn't release this information. Oh, man. 2000. Insurance companies at that time had been paying for multi-modality pain clinics, psychology, social improvement, non-narcotics, physical exercise. Procedures, injections. Exactly. Well, those were expensive. Sounds like that's a great way to treat the whole person instead of just throwing pills at them. What a Catholic way to do things. <laughs> yes, it, it's a much better way to treat people, but insurance companies stopped paying for it. So the first ever multidisciplinary pain clinic that was at University of Washington got shut down. They were groundbreaking. They were doing great work, but because insurance companies stopped paying, they closed. It's been resurrected. But it doesn't tell on the website. I looked. It doesn't tell that it was uh, closed for a while, or at least it was relegated to a basement. In 2001, an incredibly irrational event took place. Yeah, and this, at least in my training, was always hailed as one of the, the primary reasons we got into this mess. And that is there's a group called the Joint Commission that approves hospitals as being safe and effective. And they said in 2001 that we now have a fifth vital sign. The, so tell me what first, the first four vital signs are. Right. Temperature. Pulse. Blood pressure. And respirations. respirations. So all of those things can be determined by someone other than the patient. Objective variables are things that can be measured and we use them to help give us information about the disease process. Unfortunately... It, they'd said that pain should be the fifth vital sign. But pain is so different. It can only be measured subjectively. There's no way to say, well, on a scale of zero to 10, your pain really is. There's no monitor you can put on somebody. They just tell you. No matter how descriptive those little smiley faces and frowny faces are, <laughs> it's always up to the patient. And, you know, the more and more I get into the practice of medicine, I realize how people experience pain so differently. And the people who experience pain worse frequently have comorbid conditions of depression and anxiety and other things like that. So those people were particularly, I think, vulnerable to falling into the trap of addiction. I love Andrew's experience with patients like this. We'll get more of his wisdom after the break here on Dr. Doctor. We're into the second half of the show now, the downhill side, but we have a lot more good information here on Dr. Doctor about the uh, opioid crisis, how we got here. Now, leaving off at pain is the fifth vital sign. So now this is going to be used. It's not just that it was recommended. It's being used. So the Center for Medicare Services which pays for medical care for virtually everyone 65 and over in our country, put together a survey for how well hospitals were taking care of patients. And three of these 25 questions in the survey dealt with exactly how well pain was being reduced, not addressed, but reduced. And so if in the patient's perception, they still had some pain or their pain wasn't addressed in the manner and quantity that they were wanted, the hospital would get bad marks. And so the hospital would get paid less and the doctors would get paid less if the patients had pain. So connecting pain relief to pay was a very bad idea, even though the intentions are incredibly noble. But they have shown in studies whether it's pain or any other symptom or experience, that patient experience scores in hospitals do not correlate with improved outcomes. They're measuring something different. It's tough because these people want to have something to measure. Their job, however they got there, is to say, this is a good hospital, you should go there, this is a bad one. And so they've got to find something to measure. If patients leave happy, that would seem like a good idea, but it's created this secondary gain of 
if you don't give people really enough or even more than enough pain medicine or too much on purpose, then you're not going to get paid. So we see OxyContin, that continuous, supposedly 12-hour release medicine, sales skyrocket. 1997, the first full year it's out, 670,000 prescriptions. Five years later, 10 times more. See, I, I'm not aware of another medicine that's grown in, in that quantity and in that speed. Then, to punish physicians and hospitals even more, the Deficit Reduction Act of 2005 required hospitals to do certain surveys. 30% of the performance was based on how well pain was controlled. So the problem is, conscientious physicians who were rationally limiting opioids got lower scores and would get punished in their payments. Yeah, and, and that's really been, I, I think... The main driving force in the recent past is that physicians want to survive and they want to make people happy. And so it's just led to overprescription. If we look at the number of deaths due to opioid overdoses, it steadily rose from the 90s uh, through about 2010 and is almost peaking by 2006 in terms of number of deaths due to prescription opioids. In the year 2007, just before these deaths start to peak due to prescription overdoses, that video I mentioned that 15,000 primary care physicians got on trying to get family physicians to use more opioids, it was found to have false and misleading information by a court. Purdue Pharmaceuticals paid a $634 million penalty. The problem is that damage had been done by that time. Yeah, 12 years too late. Exactly, 12 years too late, because by that time, American citizens were consuming 80% of the world's opioids. Think about that. That's incredible. I mean, when you think of the amount of people that live in America compared to the rest of the world, very small number, but 80% of the pain meds were prescribed here. It's not because we have more pain than everybody else in the world. Suffering's universal. In fact, people in other countries might say we're more of a pain than other people. <laughs> but I'm sorry. Now we consume about one-third of the world market. And it's not necessarily because our consumption has gone down greatly. It's because these same drugs are being marketed now in other large population countries. Between 2000 and 2009, the number of prescriptions of opioids rose from 62 prescriptions per year per 100 people to 84 prescriptions per year per 100 people. So that would mean if every prescription was just for one person, that would have meant that 84% of Americans would have had one prescription out there in their name. See, that's crazy. And, and what we know is that 84% of people were not on these medicines. So unfortunately, it led to so many opioids being out on the market, so many pills, individual pills. Well, in 2009, the Joint Commission that recommended pain as a fifth vital sign was recommending, so nine years after the recommendation, that people were being over-treated with opioids. Yeah, that's the classic walk back. Yes, but it's still, even though they recommended less dosage, pain was not removed as a fifth vital sign. They just recommended don't dose so much. So now we see that in 2010, we get to the peak of opioid deaths from prescription medicines. And part of the reason for this, Purdue Pharmaceutical actually does something good here. They come out with an abuse deterrent form of OxyContin. Yeah, so abuse deterrent is, is an idea of controlled medicines, especially pain medicines, so that they cannot be crushed up. Basically, the people who intentionally want to abuse these medicines would crush them up and either inject them or smoke them or snort them or administer them in another way that recreational drug users do it rather than taking it orally where it's delayed over 12 hours. For someone looking for a euphoric high, they want the hit immediately. So getting an abuse deterrent form is really a very good thing that you cannot crush it or do something like that to get the instant hit. It necessarily is drug out over the 8 to 12 hours. So when you crush it up, it makes these little jelly-like globules that are really sticky and tough, and you can't dilute it with water because some people would inject it uh, into veins. It's just 
too thick to do that with. So with this change came an opportunity. And what was this opportunity? The opportunity for some young Mexican businessmen was this, black tar heroin. Did you come across that term in your training, Andrew? I had not. Well, black tar heroin is a very easy to make from poppies, which grow naturally throughout uh, southwest Mexico. And there's this little state called Nayarit, N-A-Y-A-R-I-T, where somebody got the idea of taking this black tar heroin and bringing it in to the United States. And you can read about this. There's this book out there by an investigative reporter called Dreamland. And it talks about how when the abuse deterrent forms of these drugs came out and these people couldn't get the quick high by crushing and using the drugs, they turned to heroin. And see, that that goes back to the addiction cycle because as people fell into this, now they're addicted. So they cannot stick with the prescribed medicines. They need that quicker fix to stop the pain of the withdrawal. And so what has been demonstrated over and over again is that these small groups, almost independent groups from Nayarit, Mexico, they would get into the United States, 16, 17, 18-year-olds, early 20s, they were leading them. They would get this black tar-like heroin and they would get into the States and they would take little balloons and put tiny amounts of heroin in each balloon. And then they had a pizza-like delivery system. So all of these car drivers, they bought old beater cars, they rented apartments, and each night they would go in their apartment and they would take just the little small amount of heroin, put it in each balloon, and then the drivers would have a cell phone. And that cell phone would be passed around among people addicted to heroin. And they would deliver heroin up to three times a day to these people where they would meet them at a parking lot, get into the car with them, and the drivers would keep these little balloons in their mouth so that if they were stopped by the police, they could swallow the balloons, have no evidence, and not suffer from doing this. And this business system was not used in the biggest cities where a lot of gangs controlled the drugs. They did it in the medium-sized cities across the country. You know, Boise, Idaho, Columbus, Ohio, places like that where you wouldn't think. Uh, They were also big in Portland, Oregon, uh, a little bigger city. But again, the places that were most affected, Appalachia. And what they did is just like Purdue Pharmaceutical looked to see where there were a lot of work-related injuries with chronic pain, they looked to see where there were either methadone clinics or these pill mills. Man, that's so scary. But it is, it's systematic. And in a lot of ways, to me at least, it makes sense. It's totally unscrupulous and evil, but you've got these people addicted to the medicine and these guys developed a way of getting it to them and beating law enforcement, bringing drugs from Mexico into the US. Exactly. So that 80% of heroin users... As of 2016, 80% of them started out abusing prescription opioids, most of them receiving a prescription for pain. And that that's a change. I mean, I think this is a, actually a good point for our listeners as well. In the past, if we roll back 40 years, people got into drug use with usually a gateway drug, frequently marijuana or something to that effect. Yes. Now it's very different. The people who are addicted to medicine, I say medicine, the people who are addicted to opioids did not get into it intentionally, a lot of them, or even with a gateway drug, they got in with a prescription and now they're hooked. Yes, good intentions leading to bad outcomes. So in 2011, we see in the United States the number of prescription opioids uh, given to Americans peak and start to go down after that. But also in that year is when we start to see a rise in deaths from overdose due to heroin. Heroin overdose deaths have been stable for decades. They started to rise when the abuse deterrent forms came out. And this is when the brakes gave out going down the hill, because despite the government in a lot of different ways and medical groups limiting the number of prescriptions, we're doing a good job trying to turn it around. The Unfortunately, the overdose deaths took off because it was outside our control at this point. So at the end of that year, 2011, the Centers for Disease Control declared the opioid epidemic that we hear about in the media so much. And they actually had some very practical suggestions. Opioids should not be first-line therapy for chronic pain, and they should not be routine therapy for chronic pain, and that non-medication approaches should be first used, like physical therapy, 
for those kinds of chronic pain. And I, I think we can say that's really when things started turning around from a medical standpoint. And unfortunately, at that point, the, the problem becomes more legislative, public health, and really taking care of the, the people bringing illegal drugs into the country. And in 2013, in what I consider to be an act of blatant hypocrisy, Purdue Pharmaceuticals told the Food and Drug Administration that they should block the release of generic OxyContin because their patent was out, because it was unsafe. Unsafe. This medicine they made billions of dollars on, now they're turning around and saying it was unsafe. Just incredibly fascinating. And on that note of hypocrisy, we will leave uh, this third segment and be back after the break. And we're back with Dr. Doctor, and I know people, although enthralled, have been anxiously awaiting the answer to the trivia question. And we stopped at this point because the answer is the next part of this story after heroin. You know, heroin deaths are increasing as of 2011, but then we're going to start to see another cause of deaths from these synthetic forms of opioids made predominantly in China called fentanyl. Uh, fentanyl is used for pain, correct? Yeah, we use it in the hospital routinely. I, I use it for conscious sedation for when we're doing colonoscopy sometimes. Uh, does it come in a patch too? It does come in a, a fentanyl patch. I have not used that, but we use the injectable form for treating pain. It has less of an effect on blood pressure than other pain medicine. So for certain patients, it's a good choice when used by a doctor in a hospital, not when sold off the street by unlicensed pharmacists, aka drug dealers. So the trivia question dealt with fatal doses of some of these opioids. So morphine, if you take a pea size, it'll kill you. Heroin, which is twice as strong as morphine, if you take a sunflower seed size, it'll kill you. So the question was, this new one, fentanyl, how much of that does it take to kill you in the size of some small object? Well, here you'll learn fentanyl is 100 times stronger than morphine, 50 times stronger than heroin. So a sesame seed size is enough to kill you. But then you've got sufentanil and carfentanil, literally elephant tranquilizers. Carfentanil is 10,000 times stronger than morphine. It's 100 times stronger than fentanyl. So if you had as much carfentanil as the size of half a grain of salt, it will kill a human being. And there are drugs like this being adulterated in heroin around the world. And that is why, as of 2014, the number one cause of opioid overdose deaths became synthetic opioids like fentanyl. And that part of the curve for death is just skyrocketing, whereas deaths through the heroin and prescription opioids are about equal and level. And and the place where this really gets into trouble is with the drug dealers, so to speak, lacing the drugs they sell and selling them. For the drug dealers, it leads to a cheaper product and the users of the drugs like it because it's stronger, but frequently the users are surprised because they're used to taking X amount of the drug. If they take that same amount of the drug that's 10,000 times stronger, that's what leads to these people's deaths and they don't even see it coming. In 2016, 15 years after adopting pain as a fifth vital sign, we start to see the AMA recommending removing pain as a fifth vital sign. Now, what have you seen, you know, like in your training, much more recent than mine, is there a concept of pain as a fifth vital sign anymore? I would say it depends on the physician. And in, in my perception, just like there were people who are quick adopters of that idea and slow adopters, there are people that are quick to abandon it and people who are slow to abandon it. So all doctors want to treat pain. That's not something that's unique. However, you've got to balance the treating of the pain with potentially producing a greater evil. And so I would say the idea of pain as a fifth vital sign for young new physicians is gone. We still want to treat pain. However, a lot of the older physicians still use that and unfortunately practice like that. Unfortunately, removing this pain as a fifth vital sign as an idea is in one respect, 200,000 opioid overdose deaths too late because that contributed. It wasn't the cause, it was one of the causes of this good intentions gone bad. 
And it was finally, it wasn't until 2016 or 17 that Purdue Pharmaceuticals even acknowledged that there is an opioid epidemic. And uh, well, there's this great quote from Medical Economics in uh, 2017 that the misguided acceptance of pain as a fifth vital sign has been and still is the single biggest mistake in the history of modern medical pain management. And you know, this, this is something that really, n- not necessarily with opioids, but it really informs the way I practice medicine is physicians rightly should have a humility about even the advice they are getting and giving. Uh, there's, there's this idea that whatever you learn in medical school, half of it's going to be wrong in 10 years. You just don't know which half. You just don't know which half. And so with, with the, the same confidence that we prescribe anything, there's, it's got to be tempered with humility and being willing to change the way you practice as we learn new things about, about procedures and medicine. And finally, last year in 2018, 17 years later, that hospital survey that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid did changed the questions related to pain. Because the new survey, instead of asking how successfully pain was treated, the questions asked about was pain present, discussed, and addressed. And I think that's a lot more appropriate because if it's addressed, it's going to be addressed to the best of their ability if it's not overlooked. And then that also eliminates the subjective component of how well was your pain addressed? Well, gee whiz, I would have liked to have less pain after my brain surgery. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's not a fair question to even ask them. And so uncoupling the, the overuse of medicine from the way doctors and hospitals get paid is going to let doctors and hospitals do the right thing rather than giving them a huge conflict of interest to overprescribe these medicines. So as of the time of recording in the middle of 2019, there's about 130 deaths per day in the United States due to opioid overdoses. Most of them now uh, due to, or the plurality due to these synthetics like fentanyl. Man. And one third of American adults each year still receive a prescription for an opioid. And it's, it's hard to say what that number should be, but my gestalt is that a third is still too high. Yes. In fact, I've radically changed my pain prescription habits. So I do facial cancer surgery and reconstruction, and people are very concerned about pain. But Andrew and I have covered on a previous episode that they've done a couple of blinded studies to people coming into emergency rooms with acute pain. Yeah, those are good studies. Yeah, and they show that receiving one of these opioids versus alternating acetaminophen, Tylenol, and ibuprofen, like Motrin, every three hours, one or the other, is equal. Patients couldn't tell a difference in pain relief. There's actually a lot of medical conditions that I have to educate patients on where things like ibuprofen actually do way better than opioids. But there's this idea, probably due to the marketing to the patients, that they're supposed to get Vicodin or something like that. And so now it's going to be trying to change that mentality for patients. So most states are now limiting opioid prescriptions to seven days unless you've got some exception to it. And in fact, the uh, CDC recommends appropriately, this is truly data-driven, that for surgical pain uh, or acute traumatic pain, 36-hour prescription is is enough. And I've seen studies in the the post-surgical literature like the stuff I do showing that patients rarely take anything after the third day and the vast majority stop within 24 hours or only take one dose of it. Yeah, I think those are great recommendations because most of these people, the initial day or two after surgery is the worst, but then after that, they don't really need it. So continuing medicine longer really just gives an opportunity for people who are susceptible to become addicted. Even though the number of prescriptions is decreasing to opioids, deaths continue to increase. And what we've covered here are really three waves or three phases of the opioid crisis. The first one was an increasing number of deaths due to prescription drugs. The second phase was a rapid increase in deaths due to heroin overdose when the Uh, addiction resistant, the tamper resistant, the crush resistant drugs came out. And now we're in this third phase that is not showing any sign of abating where these synthetic drugs like fentanyl coming from overseas are being laced into heroin. And so I'm really excited to talk about the next step. The next step, of course, is hope and healing, which we're going to discuss next week with Dr. Cynthia Hunt, a true expert in this area 
working nationally on this. But I want to make three big points to close with. And the first big idea is that nobody has ever figured out how to completely separate the pain-reducing aspect of opioids from the euphoria or joy-producing aspect. That's why it is such a dangerous medicine. Yep, and so no matter when they're used, there's going to be a risk. In fact, the former commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration, David Kessler, said that destigmatizing opioids in the U.S. is one of the greatest mistakes of modern medicine. So that's point number one. Point number two, addiction to these is a disorder of the mind, the body, and the spirit. And something great I read in just my local medical society newsletter is that we cannot arrest our way out of this crisis. The people who become criminals and steal do so not to initially get the drug, but because they've already been on it for good reasons, prescription, and now they're in this addiction cycle. So arresting is not going to be the solution. But finally, there is hope that lives can be turned around. And next week, Dr. Cynthia Hunt is going to tell us to do that. We thank you so much for sitting here with just the two of us this week and listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen to past episodes on iTunes or Google Play Podcasts. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we will be discussing with Dr. Cynthia Hunt a way forward in hope and healing from the opioid crisis. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your question to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at redeemerradio.com doctor where you can also find all our past episodes. Keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app or by following us on Facebook at Dr. Doctor Show.